Welcome to the Saturday Frights Podcast. I am the Projectionist, your co-host for this radio program. Now, come join your host, Vic Sage, as we enter the vault to once again discuss retro horror films and television programs. <laughs> Attention vault staff, this is a yellow alert. The elevator system will no longer function past level 15 due to the rising floodwaters. All personnel are instructed to cease their daily duties and report to Preston Griffith, head of the vault library, to assist in safely storing and preparing to move the library's vast collection. That is all. Victor, you fool! Do not forget to tell them the good news. Ah, in addition, as a way of saying thank you for all of your hard work and patience during these trying weeks with the constant rain and flooding, the projectionist will be offering 25% off any concession item you purchase at the snack bar. (coughs) Snack bar offer is not valid to any part-time staff members, and the usual employee discounts will not be honored at this time. That is all. I am certain that you will see that my discount will aid in motivating the vault staff. Oh, I'm sure they will be lining up to pay $3 for... Uh, uh, uh. Do not forget the discount, dear boy. Right. I meant to say $2.25 for these RC bubblegum with liquid center. You know, I thought these were discontinued back, like, in the 80s. How do you manage to get your hands on some of this stuff, Projectionist? I have my connections. Enough about the vast selection of sweets to be had at the haunted drive-in, Sage. Did Rockford J report in on the generator status? He did, while you were in your study, and like all of the news of late here, it's not so good. He said that with Steel and Clay's help, they were able to get all three portable generators safely to level 16, before the floodwaters completely overtook both 18 and 17. Ah, oh, the pump's in operation again! Sure, man, but you should already know they can't keep up with the amount of flood water down in the vault. Although, at the very least, it should buy the staff enough time to help Preston get the vast vault library collection ready to be moved to higher levels. I am sure that I am close to coming up with a solution, Victor. Truly. I will devote more time in my study. There are still a few dark tomes I have yet to consult in an attempt to banish this accursed rain that is afflicting us. You better hope so, my friend. Our fellow co-workers have had just about enough. They've been trapped here for over a month, and Rockford says that, well, some are seriously thinking you are to blame. What? How 
dare those ungrateful wretches attempt to pin this? Calm down, projectionist. You should be grateful that this kind of talk isn't becoming something from the mist yet. Our fellow co-workers are scared. You can't blame them. More and more of those not-on-bones are starting to bob up on the surface of the floodwaters. Plus, Rockford has said that he has noticed some cracks appearing on the walls of the vault on level 16. I guess the water is just seeping in behind them and causing issues. Did I not specifically instruct the staff to no longer approach the rising waters? Yeah, you did. And Rockford has been keeping folks away with the help from security. And they've been spending most of their time scooping up the bones and placing them in those metal containers you provided. Ah, then the casks of Le Grande are working properly. They seem to be, but Rockford did want me to tell you that every single time they have to touch those containers, they said it feels like they've licked a 9-volt battery. It is best that Rockford J and the rest of the staff do not make contact with those containers, Sage. Oh, great. Maybe you should have warned them about that before they started scooping up those bones, which apparently more and more are showing signs of reanimation. Rockford says that a few of the security team have been scratched and bitten while collecting the skulls and stuff. So, these containers you provided are life-threatening? Oh, not in the least, dear boy. Thank goodness, man. I was worried when you said they shouldn't touch the containers. Prolonged contact with the casks of Le Grande is not life-threatening. However... Dear Rockford and the security personnel might be in for a rude shock after they have shuffled off their mortal coils. What did you say? I said that look at the control panel, Sage. The recording light is on, which means it is time once again to thrill the dear listeners with another Saturday Frights radio broadcast. Yes. Welcome back, friends. Thank you, as always, for joining us for a new episode of the podcast. This week, the projectionist and I are going to be discussing one of the episodes of the Nightmares and Dreamscapes from the Stories of Stephen King TV miniseries from back in 2006. An absolutely fantastic adaptation of Battleground. The short story by King that was originally published in the September 1972 issue of Cavalier the men's magazine that published quite a few of the iconic author's short stories, including Graveyard Shift, The Mangler, Trucks, and Sometimes They Come Back. All of which have received adaptations to motion pictures or for television. Quite true, my friend. Battleground was later collected in King's 1978 short story collection entitled Night Shift. This is where I first encountered the story, and as I shared on our Puppet Master episode, with my love of toys and such, it meant that your poor wife is regretting ever agreeing to marry you. <laughs> well, I'm sure that members of her family are regretting that fact. But what I was going to say was that a story concerning toys being used as a means for revenge is right in my wheelhouse. We've seen similar stories like with the 1971 segment of Night Gallery entitled The Doll, or with the late and great Stuart Gordon's overlooked classic from 1987, Dolls. I believe we discussed that particular Night Gallery offering on our past Saturday Frights radio broadcast, Victor. 
we did. It was the subject of our fifth episode, all the way back in 2014. And one of the least listened to broadcasts, I should add. Yes. <sighs> Moving on, as I've shared in articles for both the Retroist as well as on the Pop Culture Retrorama site, in over a decade that I've been writing, I was a Stephen King fan a good number of years before I was able to pick up my first book. Thanks to film and TV miniseries adaptations like Salem's Lot, The Shining, Creepshow, Cujo, The Dead Zone, you get the idea. For what it's worth, the first two books I've read of King were his short story collections, Skeleton Crew as well as Night Shift. This was just a few months before IT was published in paperback, and I was able to nab that from a local grocery store. You would have been a bit young at that time. Your father had no qualms with you reading such adult material. Well, Remember that I was a monster kid, so I was seeing R-rated horror films and comedies from a very early age. Plus, there's the fact that I was reading horror short stories all the time anyway. I highly doubty that my father even flipped through any of the King books I checked out from the library. Here is something of interest though, listeners. Before I had read Battleground and Night Shift, I sort of already had seen it on TV. How so, dear boy? Projectionist, I know you're not the biggest fan of television. For very good reason, dear listeners. How can your tiny 12-inch television tube compare to the majesty of the silver screen? 12-inch TV? I will admit that my father and I did have one of those back in the day, but you do know that televisions have continued to increase in size, right? Anyway, have you ever heard of a TV series called Dark Room? Why, yes, I have, Victor. A short-lived episodic television anthology that aired on NBC and was hosted by James Coburn. seen before. You feel it. Something evil. You run, but there's no escape. Nowhere to turn. You feel something beckoning you. Draw you into the terror that awaits you in the dark room. Yep, that is the one. Sort of like with Night Gallery, Dark Room was split up into two or more segments. On the third episode of the series, which was broadcast on December 11th of 1981, the second segment, which was entitled Siege of 31 August, stars the legendary Ronnie Cox of Robocop fame as a Vietnam vet who has found a quiet life as a farmer, settling down with a family, but he seems intent on instilling the glory of his military days into his young son, buying him a set of army toys that seem to continue to expand in the number of troops and equipment. And when he makes up his mind to send his son to military school, well, the toys have other ideas and decide to do something about it. Are you trying to say that this Dark Room episode, borrowed from Stephen King's story, which was published in 1972, no, not in the least, my friend. The teleplay for Siege of 31 August was based on the 1978 short story by David Grubb, which was entitled The Siege of 318. 
Oh my. David Grubb, who wrote The Night of the Hunter? The one in the same. Not to mention, he penned the teleplay for Night Gallery, The Last Laurel, which he adapted from his own story that was called The Horsehair Trunk. The Darkroom segment is its own story, even if both Siege of 31 August, as well as Battleground, share some similarities. By the way, you can totally check out the entire Darkroom series, if you want, on NBC.com. Are we shilling for NBC now? No, of course not. I thought our fellow Fright fans might want to check the series out for themselves. Did you watch Battleground when it originally aired, Sage? Sort of. I taped it as I was at work at the time when it aired. Nightmares and Dreamscapes, from the stories of Stephen King, was, as I have already mentioned, a miniseries. One that premiered on TNT on July 12th of 2006, adapting five stories from the 1993 collection of short stories by Stephen King of the same name, with the other three stories, such as Battleground, coming from other collections. Projectionist. You might not know this, but the four-week miniseries was kind of a big deal at the time. Thanks in no small part to the amount of talent they were able to secure in front of and behind the camera. They landed such actors as William H. Macy, Claire Furlani, Ron Livingston, Tom Berenger, Kim Delaney, Samantha Mathis, Stephen Weber, and, for Battleground, none other than William Hurt. An amazing actor who, in Battleground, is able to deliver something quite Different from such films as Altered States, The Big Chill, or Children of a Lesser God. Hey, don't forget his role as Inspector Frank Bumstead in Alex Proye's exceptional Dark City from 1998, or his very memorable part in David Cronenberg's 2005 adaptation of A History of Violence. Listeners, what my co-host was referring to just a moment ago is the fact that during Battleground, there is barely a couple of lines of dialogue spoken. Beyond grunts of pain, or in one case a yell of triumph, none of the cast say a word. However, that does not mean there is no information to be gleaned. It is just provided by way of a text message. The closed captioning of a news report, an email, and the like. As well as the body language of William Hurt, who is quite capable of making his character's feelings understandable without the need for dialogue. It is very smartly done, and in the wrong hands, it might possibly have fallen flat. But Battleground benefits from having a teleplay by Richard Christian Matheson and is ably directed by Brian Hinson. Absolutely. And friends, in case you were not aware, these two talented men are both sons of two very famous writers and entertainers. Brian Hinson, you probably know best, one of five children of the late and great Jim Henson. He's worked on the likes of The Muppet Movie, Labyrinth, The Storyteller, The Muppet Christmas Carol, Farscape, and The Happy Time Murders, to name just a few. The perfect pick for a director, considering this episode features army figures going on a rampage, right? Richard Christian Matheson is one of three children of the legendary science fiction and horror writer Richard Matheson. Besides screenplays, Richard has penned plenty of stories focusing on the genres of horror and fantasy. In fact, he was one of the writers for 2018's Nightmare Cinema, which we covered in an earlier episode of the podcast. 
Besides William Hurt, Battleground also features the likes of The Road Warriors and Dark Cities, Bruce Spence. Brad McMurray, who plays a security guard in Battleground, apparently plays a guard once again in the just-released Godzilla vs. Kong. And this episode has a cameo by legend and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Mia Sara. Battleground would go on to win two Emmy Awards for Outstanding Special Visual Effects in addition to Outstanding Music Composition, by the way. The score was handled by Jeff Beal, who composed the music for the eight episodes of Nightmares and Dreamscapes, as well as HBO's Rome, 2008's Appaloosa, the long-running Monk TV series, and Netflix's House of Cards, to point out just a few of his 145 credits. The majority of the effects in this episode are live-action, handled by Lee Romare, who once worked at Jim Henson's Creature Shop, with the army of soldiers shot on blue screen and then digitally inserted into the episode after using the computer to shrink them down to the scale of action figures. That attention to scale and making the attacks on William Hurt look believable and quite painful are no doubt why Battleground won that award for its special effects. I believe it is past time for you to begin your overly complicated synopsis, Victor. Friends, as Battleground has been around for nearly 15 years, and with the story by King much longer than that, the projectionist and I will be going into full spoilers. A nice change of pace from our last radio broadcasts, eh? As Battleground begins, we are introduced to Jason Renshaw played by Hurt, who we will learn a little later is driving to the Morris Toy Company in Dallas, Texas. And, as we're about to find out, he has been hired to assassinate Hans Morris, the CEO of the Global Toy Company, who is played by Bruce Spence. In just a brief time, we see Jason Rinshaw at work. It is quite evident that he is a professional sitting outside the toy company, using a pair of binoculars to scope out the security of the building. William Hurt really delivers in this role. The way that he behaves with other people that he meets, it's like he is constantly ready to react to an attack. He's cold and extremely calculating. In fact, in the original 1972 story, King writes of the character, quote, he was available twice a year. Minimum fee, $10,000. He was very good, reliable, but what his customers really paid for was the infallible predator's talent. John Renshaw was a human hawk, constructed by both genetics and environment to do two things superbly, kill and survive, end quote. I wonder why they changed the name from John to Jason Serge? No idea. But that description sums up the character in this TV adaptation, too. For what it might be worth, I think someone on the inside of the company has given the assassin the schedules of guards and the like. 
Of course, I'm sure that a toy company isn't the usual place for a brutal execution either. Bruce Spence puts quite a bit of character into his role of Hans, what amounts to just a few minutes of screen time as we watch him wander the factory floor in the late hours of the night. You feel that he loves and is proud of the toys his company produces as he inspects the quality of the toys themselves, the action figures, dolls, and in particular what seems to be a new product a porcelain fairy standing atop a stump, a limited edition collectible which, when wound, spins and plays music. Hans seems quite pleased as he returns to his office with one of the collectibles in hand. Poor Hans Morris has no idea the remainder of his life is being measured in a matter of minutes. Yeah, Renshaw decides it's time to act, slipping on rubber gloves as well as a nondescript latex face mask to protect himself from the security cameras outside and within the building. He pauses only long enough to prepare a small handheld dart gun. Like I've already said, he's a professional, and while nothing will save Morris, I don't believe that Renshaw kills the two security guards patrolling the toy company. I quite agree, Victor. After luring one guard out of the building with a cell phone in front of the door, proclaiming it is in fact a bomb, a clever ruse so that Jason Renshaw can shoot a small knockout dart into the guard's neck. The hired killer, after retrieving the dart and hiding the unconscious guard, sleeps inside the building by using the security guard's keycard. Once inside, Jason Renshaw takes a moment to inspect the monitors at the security station. Locating the second card on the second floor before shutting down the entire security system. Quickly subduing the second guard before heading toward Hans Morris's private office. Hey, at least the second guard was able to withdraw his gun after getting shot with a knockout dart. There is an earlier scene, by the way, when Hans enters his office, where we see on his desk is a photograph of his mother, standing before the Morse Toys Company logo, surrounded by Toys herself, with a message written at the bottom that reads, Best from your number one idea girl. Love, Mom. Yes, Mother Morris has included a little sketch, a queen's crown atop a smiley face, perhaps showing who is actually running the operations of the toy company. It could be a crown, or if you're looking at it from a certain point of view, it might actually be horns. And, considering what takes place just a bit later, maybe, Mother Morris, you said, maybe she knows a thing or two about the dark arts. Using the security guard's keycards on Hans Morris's door, Renshaw enters the office, sticking to the shadows away from the overhead lights. The toy maker is obviously confused by this unexpected intrusion, but I think once he sees how absolutely devoid of emotion that Rinshaw is, he knows what is about to take place. Stepping forward, the assassin shoots Hans twice in the heart and once in the forehead, waiting a moment while Morse crashes face first to his desk before checking for a pulse to make sure his job is done. Jason Rinshaw takes note of the now shattered photograph of Mother Morris, but also takes time to pocket the fairy collectible. It would seem he takes a souvenir from every job, yes. 
That is definitely the case, my friend. On the flight back to his apartment in San Francisco, listening to music on his earbuds, the assassin is seated next to what the credits list as Beautiful Passenger, an apt description, as it is the cameo by Mia Sarah. On seeing that Renshaw is chewing gum, she innocently taps him on the shoulder, but is visibly taken aback by the look he gives her. It's not a glare, but the look in Hurt's eyes are frightening to say the least. He does end up retrieving a stick of gum for the young woman, and when he hands it to her, I think it's pretty evident that his cold stare is enough to warn her from disturbing him again. Interestingly enough, since killing Hans Morris, everywhere that Renshaw goes, he seems to see toys that were produced by the company. From a little girl carrying what seems to be a rather disturbing looking Amish doll in the airport, to a goofy creature at the reception desk of his obviously very expensive high-rise apartment. It would seem that being a killer for hire pays quite well, dear listeners. There are beautiful works of art on the walls, and it would seem that Jason Winshaw quite enjoys the finer things in life. But the apartment, like its tenant, is cold and sterile. After inspecting his apartment, I'm sure for any unwanted surprises, it seems that he drops his guard and is able to relax. I think you've hit the nail on the head, Projectionist. Within the confines of his apartment, and only there, it is the only place where Renshaw can be able to let his guard down, taking a leisurely shower, after placing Morris's fairy figurine in a glass case, where we can see the likes of a money clip, harmonica, reading glasses, a hula doll, what looks like a magic eight ball, and other objects from past successful jobs. Do not forget to mention to our listening audience what is a place of honor on top of that case. Oh yeah, the iconic Zuni fetish doll from 1975's Trilogy of Terror, the segment entitled Amelia. Appropriate as that 1975 made-for-TV picture featured three segments, three adaptations of Richard Matheson's short stories. I don't know, man. Perhaps it would be better for Renshaw if he had been attacked by that Zuni fetish doll instead of what he has to face. After relaxing and falling asleep on his sofa, Jason is woken by the door buzzer to his apartment. The young woman from the reception desk appears to have a package for him. I'm sure she can see the light on the camera or something, because when she isn't admitted into the apartment, she just places it in front of his door. Taking a moment to get dressed, he brings the package in. Taking his time, though, in opening it. And I think he can't help but notice that next to his name and address, there is that funny little smiley face from Mother Morris. I'm pretty sure he knows who sent this. Quite. After carefully setting the package on his kitchen counter, using a knife to open the brown wrapping paper, and seeing that it is a toy set made to look like an army footlocker. As a matter of fact, it plainly states that it is a jungle army footlocker containing 20 infantrymen, 3 helicopters, 2 barmen, 2 bazookamen, 2 medics, 2 jeeps, and 1 howitzer cannon. Although the hired killer still takes time propping open the lid, inspecting it for tripwires or other explosives. Renshaw seems amused by this package, although as careful as he is in inspecting it, 
he manages to miss the bright yellow sticker on the back of the footlocker, proclaiming, plus bonus surprises. And what a surprise it will be for the professional killer. <laughs> Fully opening the footlocker, Renshaw sees the promised 20 infantrymen. A change from the original story is that those in this adaptation are the size of a G.I. Joe action figure from the 80s. In the short story, King says they are about an inch and a half tall. I understand the change in size. With the original story, the characters attacked by the type of army men you could send off for in the back of comic books in the 70s and early 80s. It is much more believable that Renshaw is in danger with these larger toys, especially the helicopters and howitzer cannon. The assassin has very little time to try and figure out how Mother Morris was able to get his address, because after walking away for just a moment to get a soda, we hear a heavy thud from the kitchen. When he investigates, he sees that the entire footlocker is now empty. The figures and equipment are nowhere to be seen. And while it's safe to say that Renshaw isn't expecting to be attacked by this army of plastic but deadly toys, he definitely knows something bizarre is going down as he begins to search his apartment for them which is when things start to get stranger. The table lamp in his apartment goes out. Upon investigating, it turns out that the power cord has been cut. Then, the overhead light in the kitchen winks out. Renshaw is aware that something isn't right. The point is made pretty obvious when he screams out in pain and looks down to find that there is a plastic M16 with a bayonet stuck into the top of his foot. Pulling out what would appear to be a toy weapon, he's shocked to find his blood dripping down the blade of the bayonet. Jason Renshaw has more to worry about when he checks under his sofa, being met with agonizing shots from the plastic army man stationed beneath it. We need to point out that whatever ordnance these toys are using, it's powerful enough to break the skin and cause a great deal of pain to Jason. And while at first it seems more of an annoyance, as he kind of reacts in understandable shock more than pain, we can see the tiny red spots that are now lining his face and chest. These bullets might not be going super deep, but they are definitely drawing blood. In the original short story, these initial attacks are described by King as feeling like bee stings. The rocket launcher that sends an explosive rocket into the side of his leg, though, seems to do quite a bit of damage. The assassin grabs his leg, and we can plainly see that he's not only bleeding, but his skin is burned from the rocket blast. Obviously, the kicker to Battleground, both the original story and this TV adaptation, is that Renshaw is a professional killer. He is very good at his job, and yet somehow, even with powerful handguns and automatic weapons, he is sent scurrying about his apartment in an attempt to just find a place of safety to catch his breath. This results in the tiny terrors wearing him down. He is able to destroy one or two of the vengeful action figures, but when the helicopters are released, Jason Winshaw finds his face and fingers cut to the bone as they swarm, their helicopter blades cutting into his soft flesh, and they unload their heavy ordnance. The battle would probably be over for the Hyde Killer if he wasn't able to find sanctuary in his bathroom.
That is true. And William Hurt does a neat thing. While he's stitching himself up in an attempt to staunch the flow of blood, as the battle against the toys, especially when they start using the advertised howitzer cannon, begin to punch holes through the bathroom door in walls the size of softballs, it's all getting to him. That cold and professional demeanor he projects at all times crumbles. He doesn't cry or anything, but his hands begin to shake with fear. And Hurt plays it that he's very surprised that his body's kind of betraying him. These terrible toys of vengeance are not completely without remorse, however, as they do offer Jason Renshaw a chance to surrender. Sleeping a note under the bathroom door, an offer that the assassin rejects. I wonder what would have happened if he had accepted Projectionist. Perhaps they had some way to signal Mother Morris' age. Although, I am sure that a surrender would still have ended with Jason Renshaw's death. These toys were sent as a means of revenge, after all. You're probably right. Listeners, there does come a moment when Renshaw gets the upper hand, and he is at last able to destroy his attackers. By gunshot, stomping them, and setting them on fire, and more. But he is absolutely ravaged, and his apartment is in shambles. He takes a moment after the battle to break each and every figure. This isn't done out of spite. He's looking for electronics or what might have given them life. But it turns out these are just action figures and toys. I enjoyed the scene where the hired killer has gathered up all of the pieces of the toys, counting them all to make sure he's dispatched all of the soldiers and equipment advertised on the top of the box. Agreed, man. After dumping them into the kitchen compactor, Renshaw decides to take a dip in a little personal pool that is half in and half out of his apartment, separated from the outside by a raising piece of heavy glass. It looks like a nice way to relax, especially after being victorious in such a bizarre battle. Renshaw is soaking for a few moments, but suddenly reacts in pain, quickly exiting the pool to look down and see he has received an extremely deep gash across his wrist. It would seem there was something in that pool with him. Something not advertised on the footlocker. Being unable to staunch the flow of blood from his wound, the hired killer finally decides that it is not only time to seek medical assistance, but flee his apartment. Taking the elevator, the assassin is puzzled when he hears what appears to be noise coming from the control panel of the elevator. Renshaw barely has a moment to react as that panel explodes outward. Inside, we can see an entirely new type of action figure, one modeled to resemble Rambo. And judging from the machete he's wielding, this is what cut Jason while he was soaking in his pool. And this commando is absolutely fearless and bloodthirsty, darting to the elevator floor and slashing at Rinshaw's Achilles heel, and even following the man when he is able to escape the stalled elevator by climbing through the roof and rolling off to land on the next elevator as it passed by on its way down. Renshaw gets the upper hand, however, and is able to push the kicking and fighting commando between the elevator doors when they open. And although the toy valiantly holds those doors at bay, for a couple of seconds, he's finally smashed between them with a growl of contempt at Renshaw. As the feeling of relief sweeps over Jason Renshaw, the hired killer realizes there is a beeping noise originating from the backpack of the Shattered Commando toy. Flipping open the pack reveals a red pulsing light that is now beeping much faster. 
Jason Renshaw recognizes what it is. And, too weary to attempt an escape, he finally accepts he has been beaten. Closing his eyes just before an explosion engulfs the elevator and sends flames hurtling up the elevator shaft. As Battleground comes to an end, we are given one more glimpse at that wrecked apartment. At that footlocker where the sticker that was promising bonus surprises has peeled away. And in Mother Morse's handwriting, we can see that the footlocker contained one commando and one scale model thermonuclear weapon. And just before the episode goes to credits, in the shattered glass case, we can see the fairy figurine start to turn and play by itself. An excellent short film, dear listeners. And the effect, as Victor has already said, are quite remarkable. You do believe these action figures pose a very real threat. A Greek projectionist? The acting done by the army soldiers should be praised, too. While they do resemble action figures, it's neat to see them behaving in a military fashion throughout the episode. What I mean is, you can see them setting up a base with tents and the like during the battle. We can clearly make out the medics trying to help the toys that have been busted up, etc. Or, in the case of the helicopters, we get to see what the apartment, the battleground, looks like for the toys and how frightening it is when Renshaw is towering over them. And friends, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you. As always, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to listen to the show. The music you heard at the beginning and ending of our podcast was provided by Peachy. My co-host, The Projectionist, has his own Facebook page, Projectionist Haunted Drive-In. He manages to share interesting trivia on films on a daily basis, or sometimes just vintage movie posters and behind-the-scene photographs of some of your favorite films. I want to thank Rockford J for putting up with the abuse of the projectionist on a nearly daily basis. I couldn't keep a lid on the vault without his hard work. As for myself, you can still find me posting on not just the Saturday Frights page, but the Diary of an Arcade Employee page too. Saturday Frights has an Instagram account, by the way. If you want to check it out, you can find it. It's simply Saturday underscore Frights. If you'd like to contact me with suggestions for future episodes, you can reach me at VicSagePopCulture at gmail.com. For all things pop culture and retro related, feel free to visit us at the Pop Culture Retrorama site. Of course, we owe a great deal of gratitude to the retroist himself. Not just for originally hosting the podcast, but for allowing us for nearly 10 years to share our love of all things retro. If you like the show, consider subscribing and giving us a rating over on iTunes. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. We're also available on Google Podcasts and Spotify and Stitcher. This has been a Pop Culture Retrorama podcast. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. The Saturday Frights podcast is not affiliated with or authorized by any of the businesses and individuals that have been mentioned in the show. All music and sound clips are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purpose of review, criticism, and commentary only, and are not intended to infringe. Godzilla.